From the island of Mazorbo in the Venetian Lagoon, I'm Adam Teeter. <laughs> well, and still in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. Adam, man, you and are this, you are really traveling. I am, and this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Uh, yeah, man, I'm traveling a lot. So I went from uh, last week when I was just uh, in Verona, Italy, to now um, the the area of Venice, so the Venetian Lagoon uh, that Venice sits in. But there's also these like really amazing islands, uh, you know, about 30 to 45 minutes by boat from Venice uh, proper that are still actually part of the city of Venice and um, in the lagoon and actually were the original settlements for the Venetians. Oh, really? Um, And it's these three islands, Mazorbo, uh, Torcello, and Burano. And Burano is probably the most famous if you've ever been to Venice before. It's probably like you might have taken a day trip to Burano because it's where all the really colorfully painted houses are. Mm Um, and it's a, it's a, you know, a traditional fisherman village. But the reason I'm here is because I'm on Mazorbo where, uh, these crazy Italians, the Bizol family, uh, decided uh, about 10 years ago to plant a vineyard. <laughs> I can't see any possible issues with that, except for the fact that they're in the middle of a giant, you know, sea, basically a lagoon, obviously inside the sea. Uh... Yeah, so basically, like, um, I I got to come to Venisa, which is this amazing um, hotel and uh, winery and vineyard here on this island, um, where the Bizol family, after doing lots of research, realized that um, vineyards had been planted on the island, you know, centuries ago, and they rediscovered an ancient grape that was was only uh, that only had ever grown on the islands of. Uh, of the Venetian Lagoon. So they decided, hey, why the hell not? Let's uh let's plant vineyards. I the, the, we may get to this later, but man, Italians just they're like masochists when it comes to wine. They just they seek out the hardest <laughs> and most difficult and most fraught places to to grow grapes. So I know they I know do. I know we've got an interview that uh, that you did um, with Matteo, right? The the winemaker, yeah. Matteo uh, Bizol. So he's uh, he's he's the son um, and the winemaker. He basically runs Venisa. But before we jump into that that interview, which is super interesting, and I can't wait for you to hear it, I do have like one issue I've realized while being in Italy for the last uh, week and a half. Only one. That's not so bad. Well, it's one because other people pointed it out to me as well. So you and I know that we have a little bit of a rivalry in terms of uh, how a Boulevardier is made. <laughs> I but, mean, I <laughs> sure. Yes, we'll leave it at that for now. Yes, but so you know, I think Americans. So we we know the Boulevardier is a is a is is probably you know the a sibling of the Negroni, right? It's just you're swapping out. I would say bourbon. You would probably say rye because you're wrong with gin, <laughs> right? And it's equal sure. parts, you know, vermouth, Campari, and gin or bourbon or maybe rye if you're Zach. So the Negroni is blown up in the U.S., right? Like I'm sure in Seattle, you guys are probably partaking Negroni week as well. Um, you know, tons of restaurants really like to feature Negronis now. So I think as Americans or really North Americans, because uh, when I was in Verona last week, I was with a bunch of Canadians as well. We've all really, you know, come to realize that like the Negroni is an amazing cocktail. And so when we're in Italy, we really want to drink it, right? Because we're like, oh, it's an Italian cocktail. We got to drink it in Italy. Do you know how many people have told me, including myself, the Negronis really fucking suck here. <laughs> that's and so, that's the so reason, lame. And the reason for that is because I think we are – we're so funny in terms of, uh, you know, as Americans, the way we view other cultures. So we think that everyone drinks Negronis, right? In fact, the only place where they drink Negronis is Florence, 
right? That's where that cocktail was invented. Mm. Negroni's not really drunk that often around the rest of Italy. But so when it is made, I've noticed in these other bars, the reason the Negroni sucks is because no bartender measures the ingredients. Mm. So I went to this like restaurant in Verona my last night there and stupidly ordered a Negroni. And I watched the the guy just like dump some vermouth in a glass, dump some gin in a glass, then dump some Campari in a glass, stir it all together and be like, here's your Negroni. And he put like a full orange wedge in there. And I was just like, oh yeah, like that's why everyone says like their Negronis aren't as good here as when they're drinking them in the US is because no one's measuring ingredients. And I think that's what makes the Negroni such a, you know, complicated cocktail to make at home, even though it seems so simple, because you really have to have 100% exactly equal, you know, um, proportions of gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth to make the cocktail great. Yeah. And, uh, you know, here that that's not happening that often. So, you know, maybe Italy's not the place to go to for the Negroni, even though they invented the cocktail. Yeah, it may be better just staying home and ordering one at your uh, at your local bar. It is. It does bring up a, a good point too, which which is universal. It's not specific to Italy, which is for me one of my huge turnoffs, I guess. In a bar, is when I go when I order a cocktail like a Negroni that really does need to be precisely measured, and the bartender just sort of free pours it, and I'm like, well, you know, like maybe you're the one in a thousand bartender who's pours perfect ounce pours every time but i really doubt it because it's really hard to do even if you are a really experienced professional and yeah you're right that's a cocktail however you make it that the balance is really critical to having it taste good and not totally dominated by one of the three ingredients um i don't really have i don't really have a pet peeve beyond that you know things things here I'm not in. I'm not in Venice. I'm, I was, you know, I was listening to the interview, and I was. I'm very <laughs> jealous. It sounds like quite an experience, and um, you know, maybe I'll have to. I've actually never been to Venice. I, I, it's one of the few Italian cities that I have not made it to. Well, um, you got to come, and you got to stay at Venice, and you've got to go eat at this amazing restaurant on the island of uh, Burano. So the, the island where they where they make the wine, I said, is Mazorbo, and then it's connected to the island of Burano by a bridge. And on the island of Burano is this amazing restaurant called Algato Negro. So, oh, sorry, Algato Nero, the Black Cat, and it's a this like restaurant that's been around for sixty five years, and they just make like the best seafood you've ever eaten in your entire life. I ate like my my entire weight in fried uh, seafood last night. Um, I think I saw some of that on Instagram. It looked, it looked pretty good. <laughs> yeah, man, it was pretty incredible. And I think like, you know, I had a bottle of wine. I mean, was, I'm alone, but I had a bottle of wine. I had like, you know, some risotto. I had fried fish. I had, uh, you know, uh, oh, they, I brought it. I had an Amaro at the end of the meal. I had a little bit of dessert. Um, and my entire bill was like 50 euro. Nice. Yeah, that doesn't I mean, sound so bad, man. Italy, right? All right. All I love Italy. <laughs> all you got to do is get there. Well, I think we should get to the interview before uh, before any more time passes so that people get a chance to hear more about this amazing place and wine. And then maybe on the other side, you and I can talk a little more about uh, what Matteo said. Awesome. Let's jump into it. Hi, Matteo. I want to thank you so much for uh, joining me here on the Vine Pair podcast. So... I would love to just talk to you a little bit about Venisa first. We're in this amazing place uh, that exists in the Lagoon of Venice, which is, I think, something no one's ever heard of before or can even <laughs> imagine. So you could sort of take us to where we are uh, 
you know, in our in our minds, that would be awesome. I'd love if you could describe yeah. where we are and, and how this exists in the first place. How are we growing grapes in the middle of the lagoon? <laughs> this is the countryside of Venice. So uh, we're in a place where 90% of the surface is water, but the 10% of the, of the land uh, was very important for the farmers because Venice uh, was a republic that standed for almost 1,000 years and one of the reasons that it was autarchic. So it uh, was able to produce everything in its island and uh, that's why in Venice they always farmed all the land that was available. Even the squares of Venice, they are not called piazza, like the rest of the, of the squares in Italy, but are called campi. It means fields, because they used to grow vines and vegetables also in the squares. In the squares of Venice proper. Piazza San Marco was a vineyard until the year 1100. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they didn't actually grow on the mainland of also, Italy also, also, yes, but, the, yes. but also on all the yes, islands. Exactly. Also on the mainland, but also on the island, especially on these islands of the, the native Venice. And so where are we, you know, just so that listeners can get an idea, yeah. where actually are we in the lagoon right so now? So we are 20 minutes of boat ride from uh, Venice in the northern part of the lagoon, which is the most natural part of the lagoon. Here we have um, a lot of type of fish, a lot of type of herbs, a lot of uh, migration of birds. So it's a very important naturalistic area uh, of, uh, of Italy. Uh, and it's just, yes, 20 minutes from, uh, from Venice, north of Venice. So a, a bunch of uh, small islands. Uh, the most famous is Burano, which is famous for the colorful houses and for the lace makers. It's an island of uh, fishermen. And then there's Torcello, which is the, 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 the island that hosts the oldest church of the Lagoon of Venice, that is dated 639, 639. And then there's Mazzorbo, which is, which is the less well-known island, even if Mazzorbo means the major island, because it was very popular in the past. And Mazzorbo is an island of uh, farmers, mostly, and winemakers. And so we're sitting on Mazzorbo now, and in Mazzorbo, you, your family purchased the land when? So we actually rent, long time term rented the land from okay. the city of Venice because the city of Venice bought this property that uh, in the past was a convent. So it's a walled property. It's, it was a convent in the past. There's a tower on the, on the, on the property uh, from the 1300s. Uh, it was a winery after the 1800s. So Napoleon came and took away the, the, the ownership from the, from the church and gave it to the private people that makes, uh, make a, a winery. The owner has been one of the first winemakers in, uh, in Italy because he had his graduation in uh, Conegliano in 1901. So it has been one of the, of the first uh, winemakers, which really show how important was uh, the viticulture and, and winemaking for this family. And then uh, after the flooding of 1966, uh, so you have to know that uh, you know, Venice has these problems of high tide, obviously. But in 1966, it happened a very big flooding that uh, in, uh, the water remained, uh, the salt water remained on the, on the land, on the island for uh -huh. more than two days. And for the vines and for the agriculture in general, it was too much. So it completely burned uh, the vegetable, the orchards and obviously the vineyard as well. So let's say 95% of the vines has been destroyed after the, the, the 1966 flooding. And, uh, and that's why, after the, the big flooding, we lost the tradition of, uh, of a viticulture in Venice. So you're always actually, like, you're almost, you're, you're playing on the edge here with viticulture in Venice every day, because at yeah. any time a flood could happen again. Yeah, especially in the could, winter when it could destroy the, 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 the season of the flooding. We know that every winter, uh, 
may happen a flood that can destroy our vineyard because you know it happened 50 years ago but it's something that can happen today and with the rising of the of the sea level the, the we have actually more probability that this may happen in the future but you know in the meantime we're trying to make some <laughs> of the best wine so in 1966 yes is when the flood happened was it 66 yes. okay so flood happens vineyards are wiped out and at that point in time no one thought that vineyards exist. After that, people forgot that vineyards existed in Venice, correct? Or they thought that at least that the indigenous grapes had disappeared. Uh, I think what's interesting that you're you doing know, here mostly is... the farmers, you have to imagine a, a poor family of farmers because in the 60s, being a, f- a farmer was one of the worst things, one of the most difficult jobs. Uh-huh. And you know, you're a farmer and you lose 95% of your vines. So you just have to do something else. So you work uh, in tourism, you move to work in the glass industry, you work uh, in some, somewhere else because it's not possible to, to get life anymore with just your 5% of vines that right. you survived. And if you, and it was not possible to plant because the soil was so packed with salt that you, it's not possible to plant a young vine on that. And even if you're able to plant, you have to wait three years before you have the, vi- the grapes. And one more year, you, you get the wine. So it's not possible for, for a family to get a living from that. So they had to leave the, the grape and, and the farming and the grape growing. And uh, we lost this tradition, you know, for the decades. So people forgot somehow that there was this tradition because Venice was very successful from the touristic point of view. So somehow has been forgotten. And my father one day was visiting Torcello, the oldest church of the Laguna of Venice. And in front of a church, he noticed a little vineyard. And he said, why there's a vineyard in Venice and nobody's making wine? So he, st- he knocked the door of the owner and uh, she said to my father that it was quite normal to, to have vineyard in Venice and there was a tradition. So we made some historical research, we made some agronomical research and we discovered that there was a big tradition, that there was a grape variety. And so we start to, to look for a place to, to replant this vineyard. So, there's a, so, so basically, to simplify what you're saying, your father discovered a vine that was growing fruit, producing fruit, that was grapes that were indigenous to the lagoon. Exactly. Dorona, what is that grape? Yeah, Dorona di Venezia is the name Dorona of the grape variety. It's part of the family of Trebbiano, but it's a different grape variety uh, that adapts itself to survive in the salinity and in the saltiness of, uh, of the Laguna of Venice. Because if you dig a hole in our vineyard after 80 centimeters, you find salt water. 80 is, centimeters. Yes, which is, you know... It's not that much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the salinity, pre- the salt presence on, on the soil, it's uh, f- 500 part per million of salt. And uh, the consultant at the beginning, they told us that the limit for viticulture was 200. And the suggested value was between 50 and 100. And we have 500. So he said, you know, we really do not suggest you to plant a vineyard here because there's too much salt. And my father planned it anyway because he said, <laughs> He's, "I'm going to do it." <laughs> I'm gonna, no, because he was, you know, he knew that uh, uh, there was a vineyard in this place for 700 years. So he said, "You know, maybe it's possible to do it." And uh, if if there was a vineyard, why can, today there, there there cannot be a vineyard? Maybe it's your research and and that are dif- different, but uh, probably this grape variety can survive in this characteristic because it's uh, it adapted DNA to survive in this characteristic. And he planted, and most of the vines survived. And sometimes it happened a flooding, a little flooding, and, and we, lo- we lose yeah. a couple hundreds of, of vines. But still, we uh, were able to produce wine every year. So before your father 
planted the vineyard to see if it would work? Had he already rented the property from the city of Venice? He already took the risk? Like, did he just say, <laughs> if it doesn't work, it is what it is? <laughs> yes, because my father, yeah. <laughs> my father is, uh, is a little bit crazy. And, and when he decides something and he, he believes, he really, he really had these historical reserves and so he knew it was possible to do it. And then uh, the, the scientific part, they said it's not possible, but he was not believing them. Because he, he did not believe the scientists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, believed, he believed more the history than the, the science. But wow. in the end, we he was know, right. We're making wine. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, talk to me a little bit about the wine that you're making. So uh, it's a skin contact white wine, right? So yes. you're letting the, the juice actually soak with the, the grape skins of the white grapes for 20 days. Which is, less, which is pretty unusual for a lot of people who are used to yeah. white wine, right? Why yes. was this decision to do this? So, uh, so we found the first vines of this grape variety in Torcello Island, and then we started looking for more vines of the same grape variety. So we ended up in another island that is called uh, Santerasmo, where we met a farmer, like a 70-year-old farmer called Gastone, and he's one of the last farmers of Venice, and he makes... Uh, uh, some bottles of uh, Dorona for its own because they still have uh, couples of uh, of. Uh, so he vines. also had some vines. Yes, exactly. And uh, he let him, he let us taste his wine, and uh, he, he said, "You know, my father, my grandfather, my great grandfather, we always made skin contact wine in Venice because here is is warm and it's not possible to build a, an underground cellar. So we need to make our wine stronger, able to resist uh, to the summer." Uh, the temperature of Venice because we're not able to protect uh, the, 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 the wine with an underground cellar so that there was a, a strong historical reason that's uh, why the maceration the skin contact was made in Venice because you know that obviously with skin contact you extract tannins and antioxidant uh, substance so that's the most natural way to make your wine a little bit stronger and uh, and he also told us that uh, you know Gianluca, I opened like a thirty years old bottle of my wine, and few of them few, I opened few, and and some of them were still good. So we really understood that with this system was possible to create a a, a wine with great aging potential. And we're talking about two thousand and two, way before all the the skin contact wine and the maceration wine wave started. So. Um, in that time, there was maybe, you know, Grafner, Radicom, few strange producers that was producing the skin content wines, but uh, we didn't make make it because of them, but we made it because uh, of this farmer that told us that this was the traditional way of producing a wine. And because we understood with that this system, it was possible to create a, a, a wine with, I mean, with really good aging potential. So... You're making a very small amount of wine, though. I mean, when we were talking earlier, you said how many bottles of the... Of yeah, the... we produce around three to 4,000 bottles of uh, the white wine and more or less four to 5,000 bottles of the red wine. Right, because after you also discovered another vineyard that was, was already yeah. had, that had red grapes, but that exactly. were Merlot and Cabernet. Exactly, yeah. So, but in terms of the white, which is, is really, I think, what's so special about it the Misa, um, you know, I think because so many people, it's, it's just, it's so... It's such a small production, many people won't get to taste it. But I think what you're really doing here, which is so unique and interesting, is you're using the the fact that you're making a really incredible high-quality wine to also sort of tell a, a larger story about this full region of Venice that we were talking about at lunch. I'd love for you to sort of share that with, with the listeners, more about the, the history of, as you were saying earlier, the farmers and uh, the fishermen and, yeah. and everyone else in Venice and trying to pull tourists from the city out here to sort of see 
the larger fabric of the place. Yeah, the, we came in these islands to, to make wine, but then we, f- we really fall in love with the, the, the islands and the culture of this island. Uh, here, there's a, we saw that there, there's a different uh, type of life compared to Venice. Venice is a city that is really rich, with a lot of culture, with a lot of uh, art. And um, yeah, and these islands are an, an island connected to nature because Burano is a, an island of fishermen, Mazzorbo was an island of farmers. So that's a completely different style of life uh, and culture in these islands. And, uh, but we saw that the people that were visiting these islands didn't, uh, uh, weren't able to understand this. They just came here, they went to Burano to make some photos with the colorful houses, but they didn't really understood all the beauty of, the, of these islands. So we said, uh, we really need to make something to make uh, uh, people aware of this history. And we really try to, to make people... Uh, stay in these islands because usually these islands are seen as a day trip from Venice but uh, it's way better to stay here and uh, or maybe you know to spend a few days in Venice and a few days here or to stay here and to go to Venice uh, because uh, the moment where you should visit Burano and Mazzarbo is the early morning and the late night and late afternoon where the, the tourists are gone away and you see just all this community of local people there's just 2,000 people living in Burano so everybody knows each other there's this strong feeling of community and uh, uh, I really do think that uh, with this type of uh, tourism, this type of uh, uh, you know, slow tourism and, and people that come here to taste the wine, to, have, to taste the food, to see these islands, uh, this really can keep the tradition of these islands uh, alive. Uh, with the tourism of like one hour time in Burano, like when you do the the boat trip to the islands and you just have to spend one hour time in Burano, I don't think this is going to, to leave anything good to, to these islands. So, so, so cause you're saying the boat trips, you can take a ferry from Venice. Yes. Right. And you can Usually just come out here within an hour. You yeah. can see everything. You can go back to Venice. You can, you know, really miss out on, on everything that's happening out here. And your family built a hotel yeah. out yeah. out here as well and a, and a restaurant. Yes. We, we built first uh, five uh, rooms in uh, uh, in the property because uh, uh, where the vineyard is, uh, there's, uh, the, there's the, the house where the farmer used to live. So we made five rooms out of that. And um, and then uh, there's another uh, building where the, the animals used to be, and we created the restaurant. We got the the Michelin star from uh, 2012. We also opened a wine bar, a osteria, uh, inside the property, uh, and then we we started to renovate also five houses in Burano uh, to make an albergo diffuso, which means uh, a hotel where the rooms are not in a single building but are all over the village, and your uh, house is just like a normal house from the outside, almost and like Airbnb, but with the with better with the with ser- better, with with the better service, service of the of the hotel. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So we really wanted to mix the the authenticity of an Airbnb with the service of of the hotel. And the great thing is to have your neighbors, which are the local people. And sometimes, you know, some of our guests have been invited to dinner. So right yeah, so there. how so how has I mean you're obviously you are Italians, but you're actually not originally from this this area. You're from Valbiadene yes. because your family is one of the most historic prosecco producers in, yes. in all of Italy. But then you've come here and you you've built a hotel. Uh, you're bringing more people, but sometimes in in a small community of two thousand people, especially in the United States, yeah. some people would react very negatively to that. The, the community would. How has the community responded to you here? 
So I come from a, a, a place that is very similar because my, my hometown in the Prosecco region, which is just, you know, one hour north of, uh, of here, it's a 500 people community. So I, my community is, like, is very similar uh, to this. And I perfectly know that at the, at, the, at the beginning, especially at the beginning, when the person comes from the outside and you live in a 500 people community where you know everything else about the other people that live in your community, obviously you're a little bit curious, but a little bit skeptical about the people that are coming uh, on your community. So at the beginning, the reaction was between curiosity and, you know, what, what are these people doing? But uh, it, yeah, it took probably the first three to five years to really to get their um, trust. Uh, and now uh, I can really see that they're understanding that the only way that this community can survive, that the, the tradition of, uh, of these islands can survive, it's with a different type of tourism. And the type of tourism that we're bringing us is really, uh, it really brings uh, the, a little bit of hope about the future of, of these islands. So I really saw that how the approach of the people changed between the beginning of our project and nowadays that, uh, uh, yeah, we, we really uh, some, somehow not, I would not say part of the community because you can never be part of a community like this. Even if you're like second generation, you're not even part because your parents used to be from a different place. But uh, we're trusted from the community. We, d we don't want to be part of the community. Right. I think uh, somehow the only way to, is to respect uh, their, uh, their uniqueness and their community size. And you, if you want to be part of the community, you lose. You, don't need, you have to, to really appreciate the community and to recognize that you cannot be part of a community where you know, they, they live generation after generation, they speak a different dialect and everything. But if you respect themselves and if you bring something uh, and share something that, with them that can be helpful for, for the survival of the tradition of the island, uh, you can be appreciated by the community. Have, have many people in the community tried the wine since you started making it on the island? Uh, no, not really, not really, because they, they're very traditionalists. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, they, they keep, like, they are fishermen and they keep fishing, they are lace makers and they're just uh, lace making. Uh, sometimes, yeah, they, they try. And most of the people they try, they say, oh, yes, I, I remember when the wine was made. I, oh, my uncle was making the wine. My grandfather was making the wine or we had a friend. Uh, so that, that is nice to share the, the memories about the past of, uh, of this wine tradition. But uh, yeah, they're not trying to make the wine. They, keep, <laughs> you know, they are like, they say, oh, my, my family is like fishermen from like 20 generations. Right. That's what they're doing. <laughs> As they're doing well thank you so much for sharing uh everything about venisa with me um i, I think it's a really really special place thank and you thank you Adam. anyone who has the opportunity to come and visit here i think will have an incredible experience <laughs> thank you thank you we thank welcome you. you to venisa thank you ciao ciao so i mean hopefully everyone gotten a really amazing sense um, from that interview of what Vanessa really is and this you know ridiculous wine that they're uh, that they're making on this island um, you know the wine comes packaged in a 500 milliliter bottle so it's you know smaller than um, uh, you know a 750 and it's actually the front of the label every um, 
year has a different gold leaf design, so literally gold leaf. And only 400 bottles come to the U.S. every year. Wow. I mean, only making 2,000 total. I mean, it's, it's pretty nuts. Like this is, this is the definition of, you know, Italian passion and craziness. <laughs> yeah, for, for sure. And, and it's, it, it, it is one of these great things where, you know, I thought it was, there were so many interesting things in that conversation. I think the two that really jumped out to me, one is, you know, this conversation about the, about skin contact and, you know, what, what I think would sort of be typically labeled as orange wine. Um, and, and how that really is, you know, we think of it now as sort of this a sort of trendy thing in certain circles. Um, but, but as is the case with some of the other parts of Europe where you see uh, sort of orange wine, like in, um, some other parts of Northern Italy, Georgia, et cetera, you know, it's really a traditional thing. And I thought it was really fascinating to hear Matteo talk about how the tradition there was to to kind of do this extended skin contact because it was really the only way they could protect the wine. Like, you know, the, I guess it makes sense. You can't exactly, in a, you know, in a lagoon on an island, you can't dig a cellar. There's no, you know, if you've got, you know, salt water 80 centimeters below the surface, you're not going <laughs> to not gonna be able to build right. a cellar. And uh, air conditioning was definitely not a thing back then. So it, it makes sense to me. Uh, but it really does spark this question in my mind, um, which, you know, I think we talked about this a while back. Do you, do you feel like, you know, from, from our listeners, readers, you know, do people understand orange wine? Is it, does it, do you think it's going to ever have, you know, it's not going to be rosé, but is it ever going to have a bigger place in the wine conversation here? Or do you think it's going to remain sort of this weird niche um, thing that you and I like, but most people are kind of like, what? I mean, I think it'll continue to be this niche thing. I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, you know, I think, you know, as the as the psalm on the on the team of of two, <laughs> you know. Um, before we talk about that, you want to explain a little bit of what orange wine is, just I know Matteo talks about it a little bit. Um, but you know, I think sometimes even winemakers, people in the in the industry, can sort of gloss over some of the ideas of what orange wine is. So. You know, yeah. why don't you take us through it real quick? Sure. So the best way I've come up with to explain this to people is if you think of rosé as a red grapes that are that where the wine is made like white wine, so very minimal skin contact um, and just picking up a little bit of color. Uh, orange wine is basically white grapes that are uh, made like red wine. So uh, the grapes are crushed and then the skins are left in contact with the wine for an indeterminate amount of time. In the case, uh, like with Mateo's wines, it's, it sounds like about 20 days. I've heard yeah. everything up to like eight weeks. So, you know, uh, really, really long um, extended macerations. And the idea there is to extract um, a lot of aromatics, a lot of um, tannin, um, because even uh, green or you know white grapes have some amount of tannin in the skin. It's just much less than red grapes. And um, to in some cases, allow the wine to oxidize slightly, although I find that in the really good orange wines, there's very little oxidative quality. There's maybe a little bit of the sort of nuttiness um, that you associate with extended oxidation, but they don't taste like sherry. They still are, are distinctly wine-like. Um, and it just creates this really interesting sort of very savory, textural, rich wine that is its own thing. You know, it is it is somewhere you know, maybe equidistant between red and white wine, but it's not rosé. It's like the rosé is like mirror image in this fun way. And what it's, what's really great about it and the reason that sommeliers tend to be into it, I think, uh, is it really is an extremely uh, versatile food pairing wine. And it's good with – as sort of the savory counterpart to other – foods in that general realm. So, I mean, you're in Italy, so obviously it goes great with a lot of cured meats and salamis and prosciutto and things like that. It goes well with hard cheeses. But it's also really nice with like 
things like like fried fish or things oh, it's delicious, like delicious, yeah. Yeah, or or even like it goes really nicely. I wouldn't necessarily have it with like a really rich, you know, like beef steak, but it goes pretty well with like red meat, which is hard to find if you don't go usually. You know, it's hard to find a pairing for red meat that doesn't involve red wine typically. So it's kind of this like and it's also, like I said, this sort of very ancestral, ancient technique. Um, but but nowadays, you know, I think you see people um, really experimenting with it with a, a set of varietals that are really uh, well suited to it. So Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio is one of the most common. You see it with like um, Gewürztraminer and um, sometimes, you know, even Riesling, you know, sort of more aromatic varietals where, you know, you really get these – you still get these really pretty perfumed notes. But the wine is super you – know, it's, it's totally dry. It's very – um, textural and it's it's really weird and fun, I think, but definitely confounds people when they first try. Totally. So, I mean, I think in those regards, I think in in a lot of circles, it will start to grow. But I don't think orange wine will ever be, you know, a massive new wine. I mean, even some people, I, you know, I'm I'm friends with a producer who makes a as we would call orange wine or skin contact, which I think is, you know, almost you know easier to understand. Um, you know, uh, Pinot Grigio and he's poured it before for, you know, at wine festivals and stuff. And we'll even tell me people come up and like, Oh my God, I love this, this reason, you know, this rose Pinot Grigio. <laughs> you know, so I think it, cause it, cause, you know, with, with Pinot Grigio agree, it's, it's the grapes almost gray. And yeah. so when, cause I think most people don't realize that, you know, when a grape is pressed, the juices run clear. Yeah. And so, you know, all the color, whether red, white, or rosé comes from those skins, you know, yeah. sorry, red, white, or orange. And if not, we would just have pretty much white wine, um, even with red grapes, which is why you can make white wine with red grapes. And sometimes it's really awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, so I, I think what they're doing is really cool. I think it's, I, I actually didn't, before he and I sat down, I had no idea why they were making the wine orange. Um, you know, they discovered, you know, white wine grapes growing in the, uh, you know, in the lagoon. And I was like, you know, why are you making an orange wine? And then just the fact that it's like, well, we found another guy that basically said, this is how his family's done it forever. So we're going to do it this way too. It was pretty crazy. Cause again, I think it's just like Italians sort of really, uh, you know, strong belief that tradition and history is even more important than the right or wrong way to do something. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, sure. I love when Mateo's like, yeah, my, fa- my father talked to the scientists and he was like, basically screw off. <laughs> like yep. I-, I trust history more than I trust you. Yep. Yeah. No, it's, and it's Italians definitely... love to be, you know, <laughs> they love things to be hard. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's funny, you know, I was like listening to the podcast and I was thinking about some of the other places in Italy where, um, they make they grow grapes in places where you know most people would be like this is a fucking terrible idea whether it's like the slopes of mount etna on sicily where like you're do- literally dodging like lava flows sometimes it is an active volcano i mean i've actually yeah. i was actually talking to some of the wine producers who were like oh you know one day the vineyard will be gone, but the wine will be great until then. Like, yeah. That's literally the Well, and that's like what Matteo said. He's like, this will be under the sea eventually, but like we're going to make wine now. Or even like if you go to like Valtellina in um, in uh, sort of northern Italy, which is another place where they grow Nebbiolo. Um, and the, if you look at some of the slopes there, I mean, it's insane. There are these incredible terraced steep slope vineyards. And you're like, I mean, now it's bad enough, but like people have been making wine there for hundreds of years. And what it really tells me is like, man – there were some really, really thirsty Italians back in the day. Like they needed to be drunk because there's the only like that was their only option for grown grapes was in these places. And they were like, you know what, we might we might fall off this mountain or this hill and die, but you know while we're at it, we're gonna we're gonna make some wine. And and I make commend, some really good wine. I commend that 
attitude because, you know, if it wasn't for them, what would what would we drink in these days? Yeah. So I got to say, you know, I think, unfortunately, this is one of those wines that very few people will get to taste um, just because, as I said, they bring only 400 bottles of this wine um, into the U.S. every year. But I will tell you, if you come to Venice, whether it's next year, five years from now, 10 years from now, come to these islands. You know, you're doing yourself a disservice if you are just staying in the city of Venice. Also, the city of Venice is ridiculous. It's so crowded. It's, it's so dirty. You know, whereas what's happening out here further out, further out in the lagoon is really special. Take the ferry. You know, it's a 45 minute ride on the ferry. Come see some colorful houses, eat some ridiculous, uh, you know, insanely fresh seafood, see some beautiful churches and come to Venisa because at Venisa, you can try a glass of the wine. You can see the vineyards. You can see what they're really up against here. Um, and it's, it's a really, really special experience. Cool. Well, I, it's one I look forward to having hopefully sometime in the near future. Uh, I'm going to have to book that trip to Venice, uh, before too long. Yeah, man. All right. I will talk to you next week and thank you everyone for listening. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you'd rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is recorded in New York City at Vine Pair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patry, and the show is produced by Zach Joal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Gridberg. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.